You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. Good morning and welcome to our Sunday gathering. My name is Josh. I'm one of the elders here at Redeemer. And if you're new, we are so glad that you're here. Uh, As Jordan said earlier in our confession, we are not a perfect church filled with perfect people but rather a people who are convinced that God has abundant grace for us in the gospel of Jesus. And so we come as people confessing our need and his sufficiency. We're currently working through the book of 1 Corinthians in a series we're calling Renovation. The Corinthian church, if you've been following along with us, was a church in chaos. It was a church that was wayward and messy and full of sinners and things that would make even uh, some of the, the most sinful of us blush. And it's like a house in need of renovation. And so Paul, throughout the letter, chapter by chapter, has been working through this renovation project, if you will, of the Corinthian church. We might say that the Corinthians are putting up walls where they shouldn't be, right? They're separating themselves based on social standing or or preferences, and they're taking down walls where there should be boundaries. We've looked at this the past few weeks around sexuality and marriage and idol worship. And it's been quite a a challenging couple weeks, hasn't it, with tackling some of these difficult issues. It's been quite the renovation project for us in a culture that shares many of the symptoms of Corinth. And last week, uh, Pastor Rick led us through chapter 8 when we talked about and began a topic of using our freedom. How do we use our Christian freedom? And last week, we looked that we should not use our freedom at the expense of causing our brothers and sisters in Christ to stumble. And we talked about the Christian conscience and how we should honor the conscience of perhaps a weaker brother and not just because we have knowledge that something is okay, use that to crush them. In fact, our greater uh, purpose should be their good and their growth. And our text today is going to continue this theme of how we use our freedom as Christians. And Paul is going to invite us to examine his own life as he's done before in in the letter that not only would he abstain, as he said last week, from violating his brother or sister's conscience. Remember when he said, if, if it violates, if it offends them to eat meat, then I'll, I'll get rid of meat entirely. Not only is he abstaining from letting go of a preference, but Paul is going to lay down an essential right for the good and for the sake of loving the Corinthian church. In fact, he goes as far as to say in our text he would rather die then take support from them and be dismissed by his critics, by those who examine him. And so we're going to work our way through this text, and I'm going to give you three simple questions to follow along. So here's three questions that we're going to ask as we work through this text. Number one, what is Paul laying down as he talks about laying down this essential right? Number two, what is his motivation for this? And number three, how should his example shape the way we live? So let's pray, and then we'll work our way through chapter 9. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come to you this morning as people in need of your grace. We come to you as people who are tired, people who perhaps enter this place feeling distant, many of us probably resonating with more of the immaturities of the Corinthians than the the maturity shown in Paul and ultimately in you, Jesus. 
And we ask this morning that in your gentle kindness that you would convict us where we have been babies in the faith, where we've been immature, where we need to grow up into Christ and see this way of sacrificial love and giving. Lord, I pray that you would not allow us to be motivated or compelled by guilt, but that we'd be motivated by the love we receive from you. Lord, use this text to shape us, to renovate us as your church. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, let's jump back to chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. I'll read them, to get, read them for you. Verse 1, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen the Lord Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Now let's pause here for a moment. Uh, sometimes when I hear the Apostle Paul going back and forth with the Corinthians, I feel like I'm listening to a parent talking with a know-it-all teen. Um, and now I have teens in the room, and I want to say this is not about you. This is not about you. Uh, in all honesty, my teens oft, do not often do this. Um, I thought another example of him talking to a freshly graduated seminary student who knows it all and has all the answers and has all the things articulated, right? Paul is, is for some reason, being questioned by this immature, crazy Corinthian church, his apostolic authorities at question, and, and I love what he says to him. He says, are you not my worksmanship? I think that's kind of a nice way of saying, did I not found you? Like kind of as a parent would say to the teen, did I not give birth to you? Like, have I not taken care of you when you were one and you couldn't even eat? Like, th this is the relationship Paul has with the Corinthian church. And their attitude towards him for some reason is to dismiss him and, and not listen to him. Perhaps it's because he, he wasn't impressive in stature, right? Because maybe Paul was wearing cargo pants and tall white socks and New Balance shoes and, and he didn't quite look the Corinthian part, right? Trying to relate to the teenagers who when they see me wearing that, you know, they're like, oh gosh, this guy, he doesn't know anything. But Paul says, you're my workmanship. I brought the gospel to you. In a sense, Paul's going to begin to show them as he asks them to look at his life, this is the sacrificial love that I poured out to you. And he's going to do this by beginning to unpack uh, these rights, these essential rights that he has laid down so that they could receive the gospel without hindrance. Now, that brings us to our first question. What are the rights that Paul lays down? He's going to spend verses 4 through 14 talking about these rights. Look at, uh, let's start back again in verse 4. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out grain. It is, uh, it is, for, the ox, is it for the oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher uh, thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, 
Is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this right claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So there's a lot there. Let's, let's unpack it a bit. What are the lights, rights that Paul lays down? He kind of builds towards one main theme of provision, but first he starts with the right to eat and drink. Now, he doesn't mean that he's been fasting for all these days and he doesn't eat or drink, but, but there's probably been times where Paul has gone hungry because he's chosen not to burden the Corinthians with financial support. He, he's laid down the right to bring a, uh, along a wife or to marry. Uh, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, his call towards singleness and focus. His missionary call, call asked him to lay down a wife so that he could do what God called him to do. And really, all of this comes together in this theme of Paul being supported financially, having his needs met in his ministry to the Corinthians. In fact, he's going to spend verses 7 through 14 showing with reason and with scriptural precedent that it is fair and good for those who labor in the gospel to be supported by those who benefit from their ministry. Um, let's, let's look at this a little bit. Uh, in verse 7, uh, he gives us a reason. Like he uses, he appeals to reason. Soldiers serving at their own expense. You can make sense of that one pretty easy. We wouldn't want someone out there fighting on behalf of our country and also at the same time having to figure out how am I going to find my next meal. We take care of our soldiers and it makes sense to us. Uh, reason number two, he says in verse seven, planting a vineyard but not getting any of the wine. I think that one's self-explanatory. If you were to create a vineyard and plant it and work it and grow the grapes and see them come to fruition and press out the wine and not get any of the wine, it wouldn't make any sense. Uh, reason number three, uh, he gives a shepherd, uh, shepherding a flock and not getting any of the milk. I'm going to say for our context, uh, herding cows, because I don't, I'm not sure exactly. Maybe it was goats. I'm not really wanting any of that milk. Maybe you are. Maybe you're more vegan. But uh, it, it, it's like having a cow and not getting any of the milk that the cow produces. Having chickens and not getting any of their eggs. And then he goes and he shows us some scriptural precedents. He quotes from Deuteronomy 25.4. And when he says that it's like muzzling an ox who treads out the grain. Now, I don't know if this was just me, but I feel like people said this all the time when I was growing up in a, as a Christian. Anyone else hear this phrase all the time? Don't muzzle the ox. Why treading? Am I alone in that? Anybody else? Okay, maybe. But I, and I was like, okay, what, what does that mean? Um, I, you know, you get the, get the visual in your mind, but basically it's saying, you know, when an ox would be treading out the grain, it would be helping them harvest the grain. And if you put a muzzle on the ox, obviously the ox couldn't eat any of the grain that they were going to be harvesting. But ultimately, the verse is not concerned, the commandment is not concerned with the well-being of the ox, although it is a byproduct of this. It's typically the ox would be rented out or loaned to someone else. So if you're, if someone's, if you're using someone else's ox, you're pro if you want to be selfish, you could, you could say, I'm not going to let this ox eat. I'm going to put a muzzle on it so all the profits and proceeds of the grain go to me. I, I don't care if I send their, their ox back to them and he's withered and, and, and dying, right? It's, but it's, taking care, it's, it's even hitting Paul's theme of taking care of your neighbor's stuff that he loans you this ox and you're going to allow that ox 
the well-being of that ox and the well-being of your neighbor who loaned you the ox to succeed. Now, sorry, I don't have time to go into that any further. Um, But next time someone throws out muzzling the ox, you've got a little bit better idea what's going on there. And then finally, he, he, in, in this extensive argument, he, he kind of throws the trump card down at the end, like, you could have just started here, Paul. But he says, the Lord himself uh, says this. He commands it, right? He's, he's, I think he's alluding probably to Luke 10, 7, where Jesus commanded that, that, the, that as the apostles go out, that people should meet their needs and that their supplies should be made by those who they're serving. He says, those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. This is a command of Jesus. And if we were to sum it up, we would say if we have sown spiritual things, and those who have sown spiritual things, they should therefore reap material support. This is right and it's reasonable. It's grounded in reason, it's grounded in scripture, and ultimately it's commanded by our Lord himself. Now, I want to take because Paul spent so much time there, I do want a quick side note of application for us is we agree with this principle here at Redeemer that our pastors who minister and our, and our ministry team leaders who are on staff who minister and devote the majority of their working hours to serve and bless and lead this church, that they should be supported, right? This, they, they shouldn't just be out there withering on the vine or working three or four jobs to make ends meet and then trying to work on our behalf. We believe it is good and well to support them. I was on our staff for over 10 years, and I will tell you, my family reaped the benefits of being supported by this church so that I could focus my time and efforts on leading this church. And I'm not, that's not my situation now, but we have a staff team who we should joyfully support and meet their needs so that they can lead us and serve in gospel ministry. This is a good and right thing uh, that God has set up, that our Lord has commanded, that makes sense. And interestingly enough, it's not really the ultimate case that Paul's making in this text, though. Um, You kind of expect to get after that argument for Paul to say, now, Corinthians, now that you see how much this makes sense, how it's grounded in Scripture, how Jesus commands commands it, don't you think that you should be giving me a little support? (laughs) Like, maybe just my meals and housing, right? Start with that. Um, But that's not what Paul's doing. In fact, in fact, Paul is going to go in a very surprising direction. Like, let's get back to remember the kind of the overall theme of this section of Corinthians. Paul has entered this discussion because ultimately he's calling the Corinthians to lay down their preferences and pride in order to love their brothers and sisters in Christ. And as he said earlier in Corinthians, he's offering his own life as an example for them to follow. Remember early in Corinthians when he said, imitate me as I imitate Christ? He's wanting to not just to make a case for what is right, but to show them that he's, by his laying down of this right, he's setting an example that he wants them to follow. And this brings us to our second question of what in the world could motivate Paul to this? to say that even though it is good and right for me to be supported by you, I refuse your support, right? It seems almost confusing, like you made this case and now you're refusing it. What in the world is going on? Well, the big picture motive for Paul is that more than anything, even at times his own well-being, 
his own comfort, his own meal, his own happiness in, his, in, in marriage or relationships, his own financial well-being. More than anything, he wanted the Corinthians to receive and obey the gospel of Jesus. He wanted them to receive the gospel without hindrance. His motive was a gospel-motivated love for them. And we, I can't think of a better way to describe it as a spiritual father to them. He loved them as a father and a mother love a child. Think back on what he said in 1 Corinthians 4, 14 through 16. Turn there real quick. He said this, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then be imitators of me. I want you to imagine this scenario for a moment. And I apologize because it's going to be all too real, maybe for some of you. But I want you to imagine that it's 105 degrees. You're like, I don't need to imagine. <laughs> Just wait a few hours. It'll be here. It's 105 degrees. It's been a busy week. And your AC goes out, right? I should have said trigger warning. I don't know. Um, <laughs> your AC goes out. Okay? It's hot. But thankfully, you've got a buddy that he works in AC, and you shoot him a text, or her a text, could be an AC woman either, too. Um, you shoot him a text, and you're like, hey, man, I know you're busy, I know you're swamped right now, but if there's any way, could you come by and, and take a look at our AC? It's out, and man, it's getting hot in here, like it's getting hotter and hotter. And your friend uh, comes by around you know, 5.30 after work, tired, exhausted from a day of working, and your friend just puts in about four hours fixing your AC. Of course, even by that time, it's still 106 degrees, and they're sweating and drenched. They're making a couple trips to Home Depot to get some parts. It's 9.30. They're going home late to their family, and by the end of it, they start walking to their car, and you're like, hey, man, what do I owe you? Like, you got an invoice. Like, I want to pay you, right? Now, let's pause here for a moment. Anyone with any sense of fairness would say, this guy should, should be paid. Even though he's your friend, you don't take advantage of him. You, you're, not, you're not just presuming upon his kindness. At minimum, bare minimum, you would pay for the parts that he's gone to get at Lowe's or wherever. And, and, and yet you, you, you say, man, what do, I, what do I owe you? What do I pay you? And imagine your friend just saying, no, I'm not, I'm not accepting anything. It's, it's on me. It's on me. And you're just like, whoa, what, what is that? What, what do you mean it's, it's on you? And your friend just says, I just want you to know I love you. Gosh, you knew an AC illustration could nearly bring us to, you know, emotional. That's <laughs> Texas. But do you see, sometimes when we want the message to be clear, when we don't want the, there to be any other explanation for what, what is going on, when we want love to be unhindered and pure and genuine, we give it without expecting anything in return. Maybe your friend knows that you've been struggling to meet ends the last couple weeks. Maybe, maybe the Spirit prompted them out of Christ's love for them to, to do this for them. I, don't, I mean, this is an imaginary situation. But it's, it's not too far from what we could encounter in our daily life. And it's this kind of love, this sacrificial quality to love, not the wishy-washy, 
feeling love of our culture, but this sacrificial, Christ-shaped love that causes people to stop and say, what is that? What do you mean you're going to do this for free? There's even a part of us that we don't want to, we don't want to be loved like that. Like, no, you're going you're to hold this over my head or something, right? Like, no. This kind of love causes us to stop in our tracks. This is often the kind of love we see from a parent to a child. This is a more natural uh, scenario in a healthy parent-child relationship. If you're a parent, you know that you pour out for years, sacrificially, your body, your money, your time to your children, and oftentimes you don't see a, a quick return on it. Sometimes you get told how mean you are, and, and again, my kid, I, this isn't my kids, I qualify that. But the kind of love that Paul is showing is a parental love. It's a fatherly love. This is the characteristic of a spiritual father, someone who would say, I will put my needs aside. I will even take an expense upon myself for your good. And it's interesting to note, Paul didn't surrender his right of support for all churches. Like the Philippians, they supported him, and he loved that. Like he would, They had a good thing going. Uh, go read Philippians. He's very encouraging about their support to him. And it was a beautiful thing, and it, I think it's the right thing, and it's a mature relationship. But for the Corinthians, Paul chooses this route as a unique way to love and minister to them. And, I, and I don't, we don't know exactly what the issue was that was going on. We do have some clues. I, I have two really, I think, pretty good guesses and thoughts at this of why he would do this, particularly for them. I'll just give you those real quick. It perhaps could be that his message... So his message and ministry wouldn't be accused of, of just profiteering or, or, or grifting on them for financial gain. Um, there, were, there were many teachers that would go around from city to city, and he, and he was traveling. Remember, he wasn't a local elder, and, and they would go and they would teach, and, and they would get money and acclimate and fame. And, and perhaps Paul did not at all want to be accused of this because of its popularity in Corinth. That could be a reason he saw contextually this was needed for them. Certainly one reason was that the Corinthians were immature, uh, so, much, so many immature perhaps that some of the, the benefactors or wealthy patrons within the Corinthian church, they might have given to Paul, but you know sometimes there's strings attached. Maybe, Paul, you can't say it like this, or you need to say more of that. Like there were strings attached to that if he took that support. We don't know exactly the particular reasons, but we do see an example of Paul contextualizing sacrificial love to meet the unique needs of a group of people. And this kind of love, it can't be coerced, can't be guilted. It's only something we experience when we are loved fully by God, when we are filled with his fatherly love. It frees and opens us to love others. Let's read verses 15 through 18. Paul says, But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than to have anyone deprive me of my ground of boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel, for if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with the stewardship. What then is my reward? 
that in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. See, Paul's motivation is that he wanted them to know the free grace that he had experienced and received from Jesus. You see this a lot lot in Paul's writings. What God has done for him is beginning to take shape and flow out through him to others. Paul does not love the Corinthians because they are the spectacular group of people that make him feel really good about ministry. (laughs) Far from that. Paul has a deep, deep love for God that flows into a love for people. Why? Because Paul had first been loved by God. Because Paul had been loved by a father that when he was wretched and undeserving, even persecuting his church, blinded him, called him to himself, and set him apart for gospel ministry. Showered grace upon grace upon an undeserving Paul. And as this kind of love takes root in our heart, maturity begins to look like self-sacrificing love of others. I'm not going to get into 1 John, but 1 John talks about that as we've been loved by God, so we will love others. It also says the negative of that. As we love others, we'll tell you how much we actually understand and love God. Finally, question number three. How should Paul's example shape the way we live? Well, Rick did a great job of helping us begin to think down this road last week as we talked about laying down some of our preferences for the sake of of loving others, even if it's a questionable thing that our conscience isn't bothered by, but theirs is, that we want to value them above ourselves and love them. Well, we're going to keep thinking down that road along the lines, even of what Paul says in giving up things that we could say are actually really good and essential rights to us. Now, immaturity in the church looks like using other people, people in our life, even family, to get something we need. An immature person is here to get from you. And you feel this when you're with them. They're, they're after maybe money, or they're after approval, or they're after, they're after even a religious good or experience. This is immaturity. Maturity in Christ looks like being so filled with the love of Christ that when we bump into others, Christ's love comes out. That we are slowing down to listen to the voice of the Spirit who might invite us and compel us into acts of putting away our preferences and even denying something that is an essential good to me for the sake of someone else. And what happens is when we do this, when we follow the Spirit into obedience in this, it's like little pockets of the kingdom of heaven, little beauties of the future kingdom pop up in this ugly, messy world. A silly story of the AC guy manifesting a love of God in a small, you know, in the heat of, literal heat of a moment. When a single mom works sacrificially two jobs and then comes home and loves the kids and puts away her personal well-being for a moment for the sake of feeding and caring for her kids, there's a beauty in that. 
Dad, when you put away and maybe even forego some hobbies or fun things that, by the way, are not bad things, but when you decide that you're going to sacrifice those things so you can be more present and, and near to your children, you're not going to go hunting every weekend because you want to be there for the game, or you're going to put this away because you want to be there for that moment. Sacrificial love is made manifest. When a person who's come into some extra money or has more than, than what is needed for their own needs, when rather foregoes enriching themselves, which again, it doesn't always mean it's bad to invest or to use that for something else, but when the Spirit prompts you to maybe take that money and pay off the debt of a brother and sister or help someone else meet rent who needs it, the kingdom is manifest. A kind of love is shown that stops people in their tracks. When a teacher takes extra time to tutor a student that they're not paid for, that they don't get any financial remuneration for, and they give time and they give prayer and they give love to that student, the kingdom is made manifest. When a family gives up the American dream, which isn't all bad, not, we are, sometimes we say it's all bad. Some of these things are good things. But when a family gives up a vision for maybe how they imagine their life, to go love on people overseas. The kingdom of heaven is made manifest. The kind of love that Paul is after. By the way, this is where Corinthians is going. Chapter 12, it's talking about gifts, building up the body. Chapter 13, our favorite marriage chapter that we just kind of fluffily read. You know, the greatest of these is love. This is where it's all heading. He's just getting into the weeds right now, the renovation, but it's going, going to there. The kind of love Paul is after is a self-giving love. See, nothing is more ugly, more antithetical to Christianity than Christians hatefully yelling about their preferences and rights. Selfishly thinking about every issue on only how it impacts them. Using their resources and gifts just for themselves. We see this sadly in preachers who sometimes use the pulpit for self-promotion and for financial gain. And we're, we're rightfully skeptical at times when we talk about some of these issues. We see this on both sides of the political aisle when politics and our selfish bias becomes the center rather than Christ. We see this when people, Christians, act like babies and bicker in front of the world on social media, in front of uh, many who are watching. When Christians grow up, when we mature, we begin to look more and more like spiritual fathers and mothers. And the quality of our love begins to look sacrificial. It begins to make manifest the kingdom of God in the ugliness of this present age. And there's no guilt that can give birth to this. There's no pressure that, you know, one of the terrible things that can happen sometimes in preaching is maybe, oh, I, need to, I need to do it better. It, here's how it works. As we receive the reality of what Christ has done for us, 
as His love is poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And we know that our Father in heaven loves us in spite of us because of Christ. It begins to open our hands to be this kind of generous and sacrificially loving people. It motivates us to these things. So I want to close with two questions for us just to consider, to kind of help us apply this. I guess that's five questions now, so to be fair, I've already asked three. Um, But I want to ask you, who is the spiritual father or mother in your life that you can learn from and begin to imitate? Maybe it's a biological parent. Maybe it's not. Sometimes it's not. But, but is there someone in your life who embodies this kind of person? They're not caught up in all the mess. They're not using you. They're loving you out of an overflow of Christ's love for them. It's one thing we do need to receive this by the Spirit in our own hearts, but we're also really weak, and we need to see it. We need to imitate it, right? We learn from Paul. We learn from heroes in the faith. We learn from other men and women in the faith. Who's that person for you who you can say, hey, I need to just learn from you. (laughs) Right now, maybe I feel like a brother or sister in the faith. I don't really know what that whole parental love is like. Maybe you're actually a young parent. Find someone who's a couple of steps ahead who can help you learn what sacrificial love looks like. And then last thing is, and this is for no matter where you're at, who is God calling you to love as a spiritual father or mother? Starting maybe thinking with your family, if you've got kids, that's an answer. <laughs> that, that's an automatic answer. Moving out from your family to your church, to your neighbor, to your city, to maybe even the nations. Who, has, who is God calling you to love? Thinking of Paul's paradigm, and what would that look like to love that person or that group of people in a way that was sacrificial? Might not look exactly like Paul loved the Corinthians might look more like the Philippians or the Thessalonians. But what would that look like? Here's my final encouragement from Galatians 5.13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us that when we were undeserving, when we were actively working against your purposes in the world, you chased us down with your love. You took immature people and made them mature because you ultimately are the definition of maturity, of fullness, of completeness. So Lord, this morning, would you help us to grow up out of being babies. Maybe even in our marriage, we're acting like babies. Maybe with our own kids, we're acting like Christian babies. Would you help us to grow up off the milk and move to the meat? Would you help us to believe Jesus' words that it is truly better to give than it is to receive? Would you help us be a church that loves sacrificially our families, one another, our neighbors, the nations? It is in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at RedeemerRR.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store.